The only idea more overused than serial killers is multiple personality. On top of that, you explore the notion that cop and criminal are really two aspects of the same person. See every cop movie ever made for other examples of this. Mom called it psychologically taught. The other thing is, there's no way to write this. Did you consider that? I mean, how, how could you have somebody held prisoner in a basement and, and working in a police station at the same time? Trick photography. Okay, that's not what I'm asking. Listen closely. What I'm asking is, in the reality of this movie, where there's only one character, right? Okay? How could you... What, what exactly would... I agree with mom. Very taut. Sybil meets, I don't know, dressed to kill. Hey, John. Yeah. You know what time it is? Uh, not really, no. It's time for another edition of the Book Exchange Podcast. That's right, folks. This is, uh, see what I did there? This is episode 39 of the Book Exchange Podcast coming back at you. Uh, this is the podcast that has been overcoming technical difficulties since 2020. And we are... <laughs> And we are back. How could I have? How could I have flunked that test? <laughs> you didn't flunk it. I figured any which way it went was going to be fine. Um, I'm glad we're back, John. We're raring to go. We had a little technical problem trying to get this latest edition of the Book Exchange podcast out to you all, folks. So um, now we're back, and we're hoping we don't have more of those technical problems. So, uh, but that you know what that that gave me a little more time to prepare, John, and I, I'm raring to go and rather excited to do this episode. So good evening. We're, we're in the evening again. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing fine. And um, yeah, that was uh, we can we can only chalk that one up to the the ghost in the machine, as they say. There's really no explanation as to why we were having these constant technical difficulties when we tried to record this the first time. But we're here now, episode thirty nine. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm re I'm ready to go too. Yeah, this is gonna be a really good one. So uh, episode 39 is kind of we're calling it Criminal Minds, and the reason why we called it that was because we were we knew we were interested in doing an episode on crime books, but we didn't want to necessarily signal that it was only going to be on crime fiction or crime novels. That's so right. That's yeah. So that's why we called it Criminal Minds, and you know, John is usually the nonfiction guy, but you know, who knows? I may have one. Or more up my sleeve tonight but uh you know we we get around and thinking about different genres that we want to touch on we've talked about horror novels before western novels before and you know of course there's so many others so this this one is uh th this is gonna be interesting john because i wouldn't say I i'm wondering if you this is a ad lib question here but i'm wondering if you agree i wouldn't i wouldn't say that this is kind of the leading dog in genres that you and i are both into historically but uh, from time to time, we seem to come back to it, and sometimes we catch some real gems that I think some some of those we're going to talk about tonight. What do you think? 
I guess you could say that, but in a way it's, it's, you know, as we'll find out and as often happens when we pick a particular genre or, or category, you know, it's really a lot broader than, I mean, there's, when you think crime novels, you think like mysteries or detective novels, but then when you start thinking about crime, it gets a lot broader than that. So, you know, and when we broaden that out, I think it covers a lot more of what you and I had previously read and liked to read. So, you know, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but I, I, I get what you're saying. I wouldn't necessarily automatically call it my number one genre, but I've certainly <laughs> read a lot of books that have to do with crime and criminal minds. So we're going to get into it here in a minute. Yeah, you make a good point. I guess I was starting to think, although I don't think either one of us really sort of see it this way, but I was thinking a little bit more narrowly there because crime is kind of its own genre, I guess, usually with fiction. But, oh, well, there's crime and then there's true crime. So there's like a lot of money to be made in the commercial book world for crime novels that are straight up genre crime novels. And some of those writers are the best at, best around. And then there's a whole, you know, big wing of the of the book machine across the world that has to do with true crime as well. But, you know, a lot of the books we're going to be talking about don't necessarily fit into like the genre per se. But, you know, criminal activity and criminal minds are just sort of fundamental to the whole human condition, John. And so we're going to go a lot of different directions tonight. I'm very excited about some of the books that we're going to recommend. And like we do with, and just an administrative note, just to go to the administrative side, like we do with, a lot of genres. It's so broad that we could go on forever. We're, we're really focusing on, I guess I would say some of our favorites, you know, some of the best experiences we've had with books that specifically have to do with crime. Um, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, we're raring to go just administratively. Just want to repeat ways you can contact with us. We have had a little more traction recently with the, email address, which is great, book-exchange, no, I'm sorry, forgive me, book exchange, book exchange with the next twins, all one word, book exchange twins at gmail.com. And then you can all, always go out to our anchor site, anchor.fm forward slash book dash exchange with an X. Leave us a voicemail if you want to do that. And if you do, we'll feature you on the show. And uh, I also want to give a shout out to, because we're now up to 25 countries around the world, most recent one being, I didn't even know this was its own country, but I guess it is uh, Hong Kong and uh, India and Egypt. I think we've mentioned before. So we're in 25 countries around the world. And so we're excited for all of our listeners worldwide. John, do you have any notes that you'd like to make tonight? I only want to make a comment on the, on the opening clip for the. Uh, oh, thank the, you. Yeah. At the very beginning of the show, we just. So that, if you don't mind, you know, I just like that. We thought it would just be a little dash of humor there. That, if you didn't recognize that, that's a that's an audio clip from the film adaptation starring Nick Cage and Nick Cage. You know, playing <laughs> playing twin brothers, but they have such a hilarious dialogue about. And in this case, he happens to be writing a movie script about a serial killer, which is what you heard at the outset of this episode. But it, it's so it's so funny how they go into like the various cliches of, you know, writing cop and killer, you know, screenplays. And you don't get the whole clip there for context, but it's just, you know, I, we thought it would be kind of funny to just, A, start off with something just a little humorous and different and B, something that kind of 
you know, talks about the plotting of, you know, criminal, in this case, screenplays, but stories and how convoluted and twisted it can get. It was just like, we just had to do it. So I, I just had to, I, it, it, it popped into my head. It was sort of my idea to do that. So I just wanted to explain myself, but I hope the listeners enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it works as a cold opener. I should have brought it up, John, but that's why there's two of us to kind of back each other up, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, that is a hilarious clip and it's a really great movie. And it gives me a little bit of a good segue here to our first break um, because, you know, that, as, as you mentioned, that's a clip from a film in which Nicolas Cage, you know, through the magic of trick photography, maybe, portrays <laughs> two twins in which he's, you know, playing both the twins. So it's kind of a fake set of twins. Well, this is the Book Exchange podcast where you get a real set of twins to guide you through the book world. So we're That's really right. excited to be here. And uh, we are, ladies and gentlemen, the real thing. So, John, let's take our first break and we'll come back and we'll talk about the books that we're reading now. Right on. All right. And John, I'm kicking the ball to you. What are you, what are you reading now and uh, what's it like? Well, I'm literally in the final pages of a book um, in a totally different genre, speaking of genres, that I've been meaning to read for a long, long time. It's been sitting on my shelf. And in this particular genre, which happens to be science fiction, this is one of the, I would say, the cornerstone epics of American science fiction for sure. Rushmore of uh, science fiction writers. This one has to be on it. I'm talking about Isaac Asimov, and mm. I I dipped into the Foundation trilogy. Honestly, it has uh, nothing yeah. to do nothing to do with the fact that a very recent uh, one of the streaming networks or channels or whatever. I don't know. That's just total coincidence. I've, I've had this trilogy on my shelf for a long time. And I have Asimov just as a writer. And um, he's the author of I, Robot, which is a fascinating story. But uh, had never read this, this sort of seminal trilogy. And there are other books, apparently, in the Foundation series that he wrote later in his career. But the, tr the main trilogy, which consists of Foundation... Uh, the second book is called Fire, and the third is called Second Foundation. Anyway, I'm just at the very end of the first volume. Um, I said it has nothing to do with the adaptation. It's actually a friend of mine who I occasionally talk about books with. He was asking me about science fiction and asked me if I had ever read it. And um, we talked about it. He was sort of pushing me again because he really he really thought it was fascinating and it is fascinating i mean it's uh without getting too far into it uh it, it's just what's amazing about foundation is this is the huge scope of his imagination asimov as he envisioned humanity thousands and thousands of years into the future you know spreading far and wide out into the galaxy 
and basically creating a galactic empire. And then that galactic empire kind of falls. He had been reading Edward Gibbon about the fall of the Roman empire. And he had this broad, ambitious idea if he could write something akin to that whole analysis of how the Roman empire fell and what happened after that and set it in space. So that's, that's what he did. And it just kind of grew and, you know, gather a, mom a momentum and a life of its own. But I, I mean, it's just the scope of, you know, he's taught multiple civilizations. He talks about economics and religion and politics and, you know, legal matters. And he creates his own whole area of academics called psychohistory in which you can sort of, by analyzing data, you can sort of predict the future and you can predict where, you know, humanity is going to be thousands of years into the future. It's just, it's really ambitious in scope. It's complicated. Um, but uh, I've really kind of enjoyed what I would call, I mean, this is not Star Wars, you know, this is not um, Buck Rogers. This is more of an intellectual exercise, uh, but, I, but a really fascinating one. And um, I think the book has some flaws. It's certainly dated, you know, it, it was written in the 40s. I know you'll find this interesting. For such a famous book, there is not a single female character in this book, not even mentioned until you're 80% through it, which I thought was staggering. Um, yeah, that, that really is something, yeah. Yeah, how you could write this epic tale and not include a single woman is beyond me. Uh, that's almost an achievement. Um, <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah, that's that's a... that. I don't mean that in a good way. I mean, like, you know, how you can literally not write about 50% of humankind is kind of blows my mind. But anyway, fascinating read. And uh, I think I'm going to, I'm not going to blow through the whole trilogy. I, I I might read it, but I might take a break in between the volumes and read something else, which we can talk about later. Well, that, what a great, what a great book to read, John. Um, I have read the first volume as well. I've read Foundation. Uh, I have an omnibus edition, which I think you have too. You gave it to me. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I remember having to put that down and, you know, you know, it was challenging. And then I, I haven't gotten back to the other two volumes that I'm almost positive I'd have to reread the first one. But, uh, you know, it just brings to mind, like, and someday we'll talk more exclusively about it, science fiction novels. But when it comes to ambition, you know, the great masters of science fiction, you know, sort of take it literally and figuratively farther than anybody, you know. And that's one of the things that you read great science fiction for. There's been a lot of talk of the novel Dune. It's a movie op adaptation out. And that's an incredibly, yeah. what's really striking about that book. It's a great book all around, but what's really striking about it is how ambitious it is and how vast in scope it is, you know? And of course it led to a whole saga of increasingly wild science fiction novels. But anyway. Yeah. And we've talked about one. it on the, on the podcast before. I believe you talked about it on one of the episodes. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, so, you know, just the ambition of the, the great science fiction, science fiction writers and even the not great science fiction writers, that's very characteristic of that particular genre. So uh, good choice there. And it's interesting. I'll just cover it really quick before we get into the meaning of the episode. I'm, I'm also in the, the final pages of a book that came up uh, two episodes ago, episode 37 in The Hidden Gems episode that we did i was inspired by you actually uh and, and one of the books that you brought up in that episode was called the song lines 
um, no, by Bruce Chatwin. And I, I mentioned during the episode that I had a copy of it, hadn't read it yet. And I was just really sort of inspired by your remarks, frankly, like what you said about the book. And I always kind of sort of hide it. And uh, but it, I was a little intimidated by it. And there's some reason for that. But um, I'll just say, you know, I'm not going to describe the whole book because you did a pretty good job of that in episode 37. But, you know, this was a book that, you know, I, I it's funny, I started reading it. So, so it's about um, this this guy. It's like a nonfiction book. This Bruce Chadwin was like a world traveler. And uh, he was very interested in sort of, uh, I don't know how you'd say it, John, sort of going going to all different nations and peoples around the world and trying to find perhaps what connects us all one to another and, you know, who man is and what man is all about. And he, he traveled to Australia to um, explore basically the, the culture of the ancient Aborigine, Aboriginal tribes and learned about this uh, fascinating uh way of marking history that they have called uh song lines you know um which would be difficult to explain but you know basically uh has to do with telling the story of the whole universe and and man through these uh through these songs that they sang and they made these like ancient markings on the 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 ground in uh in australia and the australian outback and it's a it's but but what happens in this book is that he goes and he spends a lot of time with the people who are interested in the song lines and sort of the dream history of Australia. But then he takes that and literally wanders out into the outback with them. And the, the book sort of broadens out in scope and becomes sort of an exploration of man in general and his wandering nature, wanderlust. And what is it about man that keeps him sort of on the, on the, on foot and on the move all the time. And it becomes sort of like a really broad meditation um, of those bigger questions. And all I would say is it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really fascinating book. It's not very easy uh, to read quickly. You know, I found I find it to be a little bit challenging, but there's a definitely, I appreciated what you said about it. There's definitely kind of a spell cast in this book, you know, and as you, you go further into the book and sort of further wide into broader examination of basically, who are we? Why are we here? What are we doing? And why do we do it? Um, Chatwin has a way of just raising these questions and meditating on them in, in a sort of a beautiful, but also kind of like mysterious and enchanting manner. And it just kind of grows in that direction as you keep going. And it's just really stimulating. You really start to, you know, make connections yourself between all humans, you know, no matter how we look or where we're from or what have you, or how far back we stretch and, you know, what we're all about. So it's a very fascinating nonfiction book and it's challenging, but really in the best way. So that's what I would say about the song lines. Yeah. Well, I, I commend you because it's a very, very difficult book to describe. And what Chatwin is trying to describe, especially that worldview and the cosmology of the Aboriginal people is very, very hard to describe as yeah. well. So, yeah. I mean, there are layers to this book. It's really kind of out there but again like i said on episode 37 uh i think i use the word unclassifiable i've never read anything like it before or mm -hmm. since and it really kicked off a fascination within me for the aboriginal peoples of australia and new zealand because i don't know any other race anywhere <laughs> that looks at the world even close to the way that they do 
and it's very hard to understand, but it's it's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> I mean, it is yeah. like the polar opposite of the quote unquote Western way of looking at everything, you know. So anyway, it's such an interesting book. That's a I commend you for taking it on. Well, thanks for the book and for the tip. And yeah, I gotta say, when I you know just by way of conclusion, when I started it, I was like, this is a John book, you know, nonfiction, big questions, oh um, you know, and then. <laughs> And I started, I'm just saying that sort of tongue in cheek, but as I moved through it, I, I, I got more excited about it and what it was sort of causing me to do in my head. And I said, ah, now I see what's going on here. Just knowing you as well as I do, what John was trying to say, which is that this book, it's a book that gets your juices flowing, but it just in a way that I don't remember another book doing it the same way. And it's very enchanting and kind of like, it's like a spell. So yeah, really cool book. Those with ears, let them hear. And John, let's take let's take a break a, a break right now. And when we come back, I've got a I've got a way of setting this up that's basically gonna slam dunk you when you're not even looking. So let's break for the music and come back and dive into criminal minds. Yeah, well, what else is new, you know? <laughs> All right. Okay, we are back. Now, John, this is how this is going to work, okay? Um, I'd like to just set some basic parameters. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about books that have to do with crime, as we've been explaining. But this is going to be kind of a, a slightly different approach. We're going to start the meat of this episode out as kind of, almost like a mini, um, for our loyal listeners, those who are familiar with our um, uh, Dealer's Choice episodes, where we talk about the work of one particular writer. We're going to start Criminal Minds with a kind of mini, mini dealer's choice uh, discussion about one particular crime writer. And then we're going to go from there um, into a discussion of some of our favorite crime books. And hopefully because we've had the mini dealer's choice, we're going to keep it pithy on the, the description of the books, but we'll see how that goes. But John, uh, I hate to do this, but I'm going to lob over the net. A setup question, and I, I not only am, am I going to ask you to take this on, John, uh, but I'm going to ask you also to do it quickly. So just like a minute or two. Okay. Answer this, answer this question if you can. Take your best shot. I know you're a smart guy. What is it about crime? Question mark. <laughs> what is it about crime in books? Like, what is it about crime, John, that, like, fascinates us? Why don't you take a run at that? Well, oh boy. Yeah. I mean, there's something there, isn't there? Because, you know, as long as I've been alive, you just look at the most popular TV shows on TV, for example, they almost always have to do with cops and criminals in yeah. one way or another. Almost always, you know, the CSIs, the criminal minds, there's literally a show, you know, the law and order SUV, the wire, you know, cops and robbers or criminals and detectives. 
as long as I've been alive, I mean, it's just, and I think ever since Cain slew Abel, <laughs> literally, <laughs> you know, th there's been a fascination there. I, I think the easiest way to answer that is that um, people are sort of fascinated with the dark side of humanity because they recognize it in themselves somehow. They, they know, I think most people know, it's this is a total cliche that you hear people say, but you know, uh, given the right circumstances, uh, anybody is capable of anything, you know, something like that. I think most people recognize that there are dark pools within us and mm -hmm. that there is a, there is, uh, as the poet Miller Williams said, there is a, a, who knows what wars are going on down where the spirit meets the bone, you know, way down deep within us. I think most people recognize that we all have that potential and therefore, you know, to, to wrap it up, because you gave me a minute and to try to do this quickly, I think there's a deep fascination with these kinds of stories because, you know, just like you can't look away from a car wreck or something, when you see one person doing horrible things or, um, you know, committing crimes, you sort of can't look away because you realize that that potential for that kind of evil uh, is in everybody. And I think for some reason that that really lights up a neuron inside most people. And, and, and there's a fascination with kind of examining that, whether you would, whether you would actually consciously say that or not, that would be my answer. You know, you suck, John. Like I, I, I was going to take that on myself and you just literally stole my thunder by dipping into the Miller Williams quote that I was going to pull out. You know, oh, really? in order to, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, I was confident to lob the, the question that John asked him to answer it quickly because I thought he was capable of doing something like that, you know, pull out like some obscure poet, uh, with a perfect quote, by the way, and, uh, and answer the question, but no, John, in all seriousness, um, I think you did a good job there. And, and like, you know, cause you could, you could talk about it forever, but there you're, you're right. There's something there. And just to make this equitable, I'll try to not as well take a run at it myself before we get into talking about sure. our, the one writer that we wanted to uh, bring up. Were you going to say something? No, I said, um, you know, go for it. I look forward to hearing what you have to say about it. Well, I don't know if I can really answer the question, John, but I'm 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 with you. But I'll, I'll sort of answer the question with a question. How about that? That's that's the best I can do. But the, you're right. There's something there, and and it's just as old as time. And you're right about the TV shows and the movies. And I got to thinking about it a little bit, and I I'll admit I didn't go as far down this rabbit hole in my mind as I thought. But I was like, you know, just thinking about, oh, wouldn't it be funny if I asked John to just say kind of, you know, what what's what's with crime? Go. <laughs> And then, uh, but, but I knew you'd take a run at it, but I was thinking about, for me, the, the things that kept repeating, I guess, in my mind was, I was asking myself these two questions. You know, I kept saying, what is it about crime books? Are you either fiction or nonfiction or about this crime in general, breaking the law in general? And you mentioned, you know, there's a part of all of us that, you know, wonders about the dark side within ourselves. I think that's obvious. And, and I mean, it's a great point, but I think it's true and, um, you know, yeah. evident. But I kept thinking, is, is, but are crime stories, either fiction or nonfiction, more about the exploration into the dark that we're fascinated with as human beings? Is it more about going into the dark place, 
going against the rules, doing what we know we're not supposed to do, eating from the tree of knowledge in the garden. About that journey, or is it more about that journey, but then the restoration of justice? Is it more about justice? Is it more about going into the dark, or is it more about upending things and then seeing somebody or someone bring things back to a state of balance or back into the light, you know? Mm, yeah. And, you know, and, and it's an interesting question because not all crime books, of course, get to, you know, are resolved, you know, either in fiction right. or nonfiction. But I sort of got to wondering, you know, what is it? What is the real draw of this? Is it, is it to, to go into the dark or is it to go into the dark and have somebody restore the light again? You know? So, yeah. I just I don't I don't know the answer, you know, but I think they're sort of a yin and yang thing going there with this whole particular genre, you know. So I just wanted to kind of riff on that a little bit. Do you have any last thoughts, or do you want me to introduce our mini um, dealer's choice subject here? Um, uh, you know, I like you said, I think we could talk about this particular question for a long time. I think that's an interesting point you made about you know wanting to see resolution and justice. Um, and I, I really don't know whether that, you know, for some people that may be kind of what drives them to read this kind of stuff for others. I mean, it has to do with how you see the world. Others may have just a more cynical point of view and just feel like, well, there is no justice or we'll never find justice in some cases anyway. So, but when you read accounts of criminals and crime, whether fiction or nonfiction, you do get, you sort of get exposed to all these different, ways of looking at it. And uh, sometimes it can be a positive experience and sometimes you feel like you need to take a shower. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah that's for sure. Um, okay. Well, to keep and it moving, way, John. That, that feeling that you may, that you have that you may need to take a shower may or may not be a good segue into <laughs> the author that we're going to talk about. Yeah. You're right about that. Well, yeah. here's the deal, folks. I mean, we could talk, we could center in on one particular writer, male or female, uh, hundreds of them in this particular genre. But, you know, from the first moment we brought up doing an episode on crime, John and I knew that there was one writer we wanted to bring up and discuss a little bit. Um, I don't, so just really briefly, uh, the, the writer's name, the writer's name, pseudonym that he write published, crime novels under is Derek Raymond. He's English. Um, that's the pseudonym for somebody named Robin Cook, who um, was Robin Cook was an American thriller writer back in the 70s and 80s. I don't know if Derek Raymond used Derek Raymond because of Robin Cook. Remember the medical thriller guy, Robin Cook, who came up with the uh, the novel Coma and a bunch of others? Sure. sure yeah. So I don't know if it was because of him or if he just wanted to write with somebody else's name, but there's anyway, there's a British crime writer named Derek Raymond, who only published a small number of novels. Um, and I think, I believe one or two nonfiction books. He, um, I, I believe he spent time as a, a journalist or, or, or a police officer. Yep. I'm trying to remember. You, journalist. you remember? Yeah. Journalist. Yeah. And, um, and like I said, he was English and his books are primarily set in sort of the seedier parts of London. Uh, and that was his name. And he died in the early 90s. And he published one particular series of five novels called the that came to be known as the factory novels. And it was 
And these five novels were about basically the underbelly of the seediest parts of London during the 1980s. It's part of the 1990s. There are five of them. And they are difficult to find. Um, they're published in the United States by a very small publishing house called Melville House that John and I like and know about. And I believe they still publish all five of the factory novels. And I'll get yeah. to that, that word, the factory, in a second. There are other novels that Robin Cook wrote that are that are more far more obscure, more difficult to find, and they even sound obscure. There's one that's called one of his novels is called The Crust of Its Uppers, which is obviously a language barrier there between the US and Britain. And I don't know what the hell that's talking about. Wow. Um, and there's another novel he wrote called The State of Denmark, which I always took to be a, a Hamlet reference, but I don't I couldn't say that for sure. Um, mm -hmm. And then, John, I don't know if you're familiar with this. And I believe me, I've, I've gone on the hunt for this. But Robin Cook or, or, or um, Derek Raymond also has an autobiography about his life, which has one of the best autobiographies for the subject and for the type of book that this guy wrote. wrote. His autobiography is called The Hidden Files, which I think is just magnificent, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you can find it. But it's, uh, you know, you got to you got to pay some money for it. But anyway. The factory refers to this, uh, I, I think it might be fictional, but I'm not sure this, um, I'll, I'll just say fictional for the sake of argument, uh, department within the, the London Police Department, this particular wing in the London Police Department um, called the, I think it's the Department of Unexplained Crimes. Um, I do I have that right? Unexplained Deaths. Unexplained Unex Deaths. Unexplained Deaths. And they have yeah. this seedy facility in like East London or something like that that um, has a nickname of the factory. And that's where this department hangs out. And Derek Raymond's uh, factory novels all center around the same protagonist who's like a detective sergeant working in the factory. But one of the most brilliant conceits about the factory novels is that this guy doesn't have a name. He's just like a unnamed, you know, uh, first person protagonist who's uh, working in this uh, horrible department of unexplained deaths in this terrible building in, in the east, in the underbelly, underbelly of London. And so all five of the novels are set there. And uh, John and I, I don't remember who first discovered these books. I think we were into the Melville House publishing catalog and we saw one, somebody took a chance on one and read one of them. I think it was me, was it me? Yeah. Yeah, I found one in the library. I was kind of amazed that I found it. I read it. I, I remember I was blown away, but even by the introduction was by a completely different writer, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. an English novelist named Will Self. And it had this incredible introduction in the Melville House edition. And um, it wasn't the first. I don't think the, the order really matters, but there's five of these books. And it wasn't the first of the novels, but it was featuring this unnamed detective in this department, you know, in the factory. And by the time the introduction was done, I was like, uh, this book is going to be nuts. And then I read the, the actual book and it was one of the most darkest, um, but probing, frightening, harrowing, almost terrifying, but uh, magnificently written in a very dark way, crime novels I had ever read in my life. And I remember saying, you know, being about a third of the way bit through the book and introducing you to it and saying, okay, you know, we, we got to read these books. And, uh, and um, yeah. then I ended up only reading, I've read two of the others. I haven't read them all. I think you might've read four or five. Um, 
But these are really extraordinary, really dark, really penetrating crime novels about the 80s and 90s in England. And before I turn the mic over to you, John, my second little part two of my setup is I am going to. So I just finished rereading one of the novels by Derek Raymond that I have read. It's called He Died With His Eyes Open. And there is another absolutely awesome introduction in this by another crime writer by the name of James Salas. So I'm going to read two very short paragraphs from James Salas about Derek Raymond's work, John. And then right. I'd like you to kind of riff on those or react to those. And then we'll discuss, you know, Derek Raymond for a little while, 15, 20 minutes, something like that. How's that sound? That's good. Yep. Okay. So James Salas, a crime writer, Derek Raymond's novels. And he says they were the novels and remain strange things when they're caught. Grotesqueries, really, unremittingly bleak, brimming with gruesome physical detail, awash with despair. In between, in between books, not quite what you'd want to call literary, perhaps, but then again, not quite crime novels either. And then a little bit further down, body and soul, you, the reader, are scooped from your world given momentary flight and then dropped onto the hard ground of a world quite different from yours. You stand, and when you do, you enter the minds of criminals and victims, and you become the prey and the predator. So, John, why don't you react to that and give us some of your thoughts on the novels of Derek Raymond? Awesome. Yeah, those are those are great lines. And, um, uh, I think they're pretty accurate. You know, I think I think it's it's hard to describe the exper the experience you have with any book. It's hard to describe what it's like to read these Derek Raymond novels, but that gets pretty close. It mm -hmm. certainly does. You know, drop you harshly into a world that's very cold, bleak, sort of concrete, dirty, um, and you have this kind of nameless. You know, uh, he's not a detective really. He's a sergeant in this in this division of this. London police force. And it sounds like he's kind of a riff on like the Philip Marlowe or the private eye, but it's, it's not like that at all. He's just, he's, he's an investigator who has seen way too much evil and sorrow and bleakness in his life. He, you also learn as you read through the books that he has his own kind of personal tragedies that have happened to him. You never get his name, but you do hear about his, you know, uh, family background and um, one book kind of goes into his father a little bit. It's really interesting. You know, when you read, I've read four out of five and you get this kind of like, even though you never get the guy's name, you get a sort of a vivid sense of what he's gone through. And he has some personal traumas that he's dealt with, plus all the traumas of all these crimes that he's investigated. And it, as you read through the series, you know, um, the series alludes to crimes that were dealt with in other books, as well as other crimes that never came up in any of the books. So, and they're almost always gruesome and um, uh, just dark. And, you know, th th all of this, you know, talking about Derek Raymond, it kind of harkens back to your setup. I see the reason for your setup because it's like we start with Derek Raymond. I mean, I, I would just say listeners, you know, uh, I've rarely read books that are bleaker than these <laughs> in any very, very dark. But there's also 
my experience with you know there's there's a serious there's a moral seriousness about it and um i i think these books in a unique way they combine a couple things they combine um obviously there's stories of criminals and criminal minds but they combine this sort of serious kind of moral you know willingness to look deeply into you know the face of evil and try to plumb those depths uh, as a reader you do that along with the unnamed detective and it gets really dark but it also gets quite interesting um kind of harkens back to what we were saying you know it, it sort of like almost makes you turn inward a little bit but then there's also this very like he's awesome at like you know cracking very funny sarcastic dialogue you know there's a lot it, it, the books are very brisk they they don't grass doesn't grow under their feet you know it just the chapters are short the dialogue is back and forth you know this investigator he, or sergeant he kind of hates most of his colleagues he definitely <laughs> hates his boss and yeah. you know he's constantly griping about how incompetent everybody is in the london police force and um and the other thing is he has no interest in being and this is kind of an in a way endearing quality of his care he has no interest at all in promotion so he could yeah. care less about you know following the rules so to speak he just wants to solve the crimes and he gets kind of invested personally in you know trying to find trying to salvage something for these lives that have been ruined even if it's dignity you know um and i all these qualities together just make these really really even though they're not fun because the subject matter is so dark, but they're riveting. And I find them riveting, not just in a page turning way, but also kind of at a deeper level and sort of a philosophical way. But what I want, I, if you don't mind, the, the writing is also fantastic. I mean, he kind of yeah. like bats above his average with, you know, he knows he's writing about kind of sleazy stuff, but again and again, you're struck by these passages that have this dark beauty to them. Uh -huh. I, I wanted to read a couple to give people sort of a, a sense of it. This is, you know, he's and, and a lot of the books are him sort of like you're kind of in his mind when he's sort of musing to himself. Um, and he's talking in this brief passage, it's just to give you a flavor for how he writes. He's talking about all the death that he sees at the job, essentially. Um, and he says, but we didn't see death the way such people did. We didn't see it in a civilized, prepared way. We saw it without the church, without the priest, without the funeral parlor, no hymns, just the dead body stiffening, sometimes in one, sometimes in more than one piece. We saw death suddenly when we had a hangover called out into the raw, dank place where death was when we weren't in the mood, like a cabbie picking up a client obliterated by the dark on an empty road. I'm always using memory in my work as a writer does. I'm after something in the human soul that I can't quite grasp. I read a lot of books in my spare time. <laughs> you know, it's just like that gives you a flavor of kind of like who this sergeant is. He's just a he's just a nuanced, thoughtful, but cynical human being who's just seen way too much terrible evil, you know. Yeah. I mean so there's a lot to react to, but did you have another passage you want to read or do you want to? Yeah. I, I have a couple other, you Mark, but we, we may get to them. We may not, but I, I want to make sure that you get a chance to say more. Well, just no, I'm, I'm, 
I, I agree with all your comments. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that happened with us that we connected the two of us as we do over a lot of books, but we definitely connected over these books and man, they just, I, I can't speak for you, but they really buried themselves in us, you know, from 2015 or whatever it was. when we first discovered them up till now. I mean, we've talked about them a ton and whenever one of us is reading one of his books, it's just like, you know, we got to almost catch our breath. And when it comes to that character, so you're right, they're unremittingly or whatever the word is that the James Salas used, uh, unrelentingly bleak. Yeah. Um, I know a ton of people, and you do, who wouldn't go near these books, People, some people that we're very close to because of how dark they are. But, you know, and I and I appreciate that. That That's never really scared me away much, although these do plumb very low in the depths but the two words that stick out to me about this character though are uh principle and um integrity and i think i think that's what's so extraordinary about this character he has this deep set of principles about the victims of these crimes that he explores and the fact that they're people that are have been marginalized or unimportant to the rest of society and that is what matters to him that's why he's not interested in promotion that's not. That's why he takes the next step, even if he's dreadfully hungover or drunk or in money troubles. It's because the people that are victims of the crimes he explores just don't matter to anyone, and that drives him. And then, and, and, and then he just has this. The character is constantly needling the crap out of everybody he sees, you know, <laughs> and it's just extremely unlikely. He like sleeps with the women of the victims, you know. He's like, you know, in over his head financially. He's like bickering with you know whoever he's out to dinner with he's needling his boss you know like he's doing this stuff all and sometimes it's hilarious like this very brief thing i'm going to read here like there's just all kinds of stuff like this john you're going to laugh so he, in the, the book i just read he died with his eyes open he comes out of exploring somewhere and there's a street cop and he loves you know needling the street cops you know like the yeah. the, the grunts <laughs> who's giving him a ticket he's a, he's got an unmarked detective's police car and the guy's giving him a ticket and he's like you know <laughs> blank off you know like i'm a, i'm i'm on your side i'm not you know you're not writing me a ticket and they, and the street cop says you know and they, they talk a little bit about who he is and what work he does and then he's like so get lost the street cop says well the thing is your vehicle wasn't marked and the unnamed detective goes well there's a silly reason for that i said taking the ticket crumpling it up is because a lot of these modern villains can read <laughs> <laughs> and, and it just kind of stops everything short he's like you know well your car's on mark so here's your ticket and he's like yeah there's a funny reason for that the criminals can read you know <laughs> but, um, you know i and i think you know I, we, we can't go in depth into every i'd love to hear some more pastors john because i didn't mark off any others you can't go in depth into every one of the the separate novels, but you know, there's something very, you know, not only is there the integrity of the character and kind of the 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 deep principles that drive this character, you also just get uh Derek Raymond is very skilled at dropping little pieces of information. I'm not talking about in one book, I'm talking about across the five of what this unknown character has been through personally. Sometimes it gets into details, sometimes it doesn't. And so you're, you're sort of gaining a deeper understanding of this investigator 
and of the world that he trundles in and you're sucked into it, whether you like it or not, you know, and, um, and, and another interesting thing to note before I kick it over to you. Um, it, and if you would share some of those other passages, that'd be great. But Derek Raymond himself is, was actually the son of like a business magnet magnate. So a very successful businessman, he was put through like Eton, like the formal boarding school in London. Oh, yeah. He rejected, he left Eton on his own accord and sort of rejected the privilege that he came from and decided to kind of travel around and do other and see the underbelly of things. And then famously he became a pornography writer. Um, I have to cut in and say, you might say that he was eaten alive as the great (laughs) fish. Hip hop duo <laughs> Sleaford Mods. <laughs> I had to throw that in, you know. Man, John <laughs> Miller Williams and uh, Miller Williams and Sleaford Mods in one episode. Sleaford I mean, Mods, man. Eaten, eaten alive, hilarious eaten, title. Anyway, eaten alive, that's hilarious. Um, but so anyway, here's somebody who rejected a life of privilege, took up a seat, and you know, when I say he wrote as a pornographer, that takes out another huge group of people, I'm sure. But he took. This willfully, the point is he will explore sort of, the, you know, these unseen and deliberately unlit aspects of, you know, the world and society. And then increasingly became adept at writing uh, crime novels about those worlds that were also it, it beautifully written and make the pages fly. So that's why for those of you still hanging on, you know, uh, I, we would both really recommend Derek Raymond's books. But John ball back over to you what else you want to share with us about Derek Raymond's uh writing well I, I mean I've, I've there's a number of passages that I could read that I've marked but you know we don't really have time to go through them but um uh I am gonna I'm gonna sort of call an audible here at the in the very end of the last book uh which describes him kind of you know going after a, a truly awful I guess you'd call him a serial killer and they finally catch the killer and the, and the killer, and they do this whole analysis of makes this book different than the other four that they spend a lot of time in the book, kind of like probing into this guy's psyche with a psychologist and stuff. Oh. And then he ends up before he's going to be, you know, put away for life. <laughs> but at the very, very end of the book, there's just a little, you know, touch here to kind of show, you know, the humanity of these books too. Um, which I think is important because uh, these books, to me, they definitely rise above your average crime fiction for sure. They have a lot more emotion and a lot more, like you said, integrity and kind of power. Um, and he's kind of talking with one of, his, one of his colleagues after the whole thing is over. And they're basically saying, you know, uh, we don't know what any of this means. How could there be somebody, that, you know, this cruel and evil? And, uh you should know that, uh, you know, the, the unnamed sergeant, he had a, he had a daughter who died when she was a young girl. And you kind of hear that. And he had a wife who ended up in the insane asylum. So like I said before, he's had some really traumas in his life, but it's it's just interesting at the very, this is how the very end of the last book of the factory series ends. And I realize I don't think you've read it. So spoiling it for you a little bit, but you won't remember by the time you get there, Mm. but you know, the final lines, you know, his colleague is named Stevenson. We left. I had no answer for Stevenson. Like everybody else, all I could do is keep going. 
sometimes away from misery and greed, but more often for reasons that you needed only to look around you to see towards it. It was vital to go on catching people like Jidney, who's the serial killer, Jidney, vital to play out the game against evil right to the last card. All at once, I'm speeding after Dahlia, who is wobbling down our front path on her bike. Next week, she'll be nine. I'm rushing after her with my arms open and calling out, I love you, I love you. But she is always just out of reach. And that's how the whole series ends. And mm. it's, you know, that's a pretty, that's a gut punch. And yeah. It's not, again, not, it's not happy, but uh, there's a real power to these books. And they really move quickly. And if you can stomach kind of stronger stuff, I think they're some of the best crime books that I've ever read. I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think these books come sort of with our highest recommendation. And uh, although I feel like we've given enough warning as to the nature of the books, but there's, you know, really kind of an extraordinary power um, behind this, the work that this gentleman did. And I wish I knew where it came from. I wish I had some of the skills to kind of write as sort of in, 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 in as pithy a manner as he, he did. Um, and, but nonetheless, uh, create an atmosphere and create a kind of a magnetic pull to the pages that keeps you ripping through them. I mean, if anyone does read one of the factory books, you don't, you're not in the book very long and it's probably a mercy that you're not, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and maybe to, to, uh, were you finished? Yeah. Maybe as a bookend, I'm going to, I'm going to read another quote from James Solace who wrote that int introduction that you had read from. But to kind of summarize, this is him summarizing the entire Factory series by Derek Raymond. No one claiming interest in literature truly written from the edge of human experience. No one wondering at the limits of the crime novel and of literature itself can overlook these extraordinary books. So that's more or less how we feel and, and yeah. what we would say about the work of Derek Raymond. We should say, I'll just say really quick, the five books in the Factory series are called He Died With His Eyes Open. The Devil's Home on Leave, How the Dead Live, I Was Dora Suarez, and Dead Man Upright. So those are the five novels in the series. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned those titles. So um, that's Derek Raymond. Check him out if you have the stomach. And John, let's take a quick technical break, and we'll come back and talk about some of our other favorite novels about crime. All right. Great. Let's go. So, John, for the next, uh, the rest of the episode, I'm myself of, I guess I'd say about four other books I wanted to discuss, but two of them are kind of couplets. So, what I was going to suggest, you know, one of us hit one of our 
books we want to discuss or, you know, whatever you plan to do and then kick it over to the other guy. And I'm more than willing to drop one or two. If we feel like we're running out of time, I'll just kind of call an audible on that. Uh, but do you want to start going through some other titles? I think what I'll do is I'll just say a few comments that I wanted to make to kind of frame the rest of this discussion a little bit. Then I'll kick it back over to you. I have so many that I'll, I'll probably just mention titles. I won't really go in depth into any, any of them. Focus on the nonfiction side, just to give some variety to things. Um, Cause I would imagine, is it true that most of yours are fiction? Uh, most of mine are, I, I have one that's uh, a nonfiction one that's kind of borderline. <laughs> okay. I think we're going to be jumping around a lot, but I just wanted to mention like, and we both know this, like I, I alluded to this in the beginning, you know, this, this category is, when I was thinking about it, it's so broad. You think about books that have to do with crime. And we already said, you know, uh, that can encompass, you know, uh, you know, kind of like noir novels, hard boiled detective novels. Um, but there's, you know, th then the entire huge mystery genre, you know, all kind of falls into that category. And that opens it up to classics like Sherlock Holmes you know, or um, G.K. Testerton's Father Brown's Father Brown Mysteries, Agatha Christ Christie, you know, even like when we were kids, Encyclopedia Brown, you know, I talked about, I thought about right. riffing on that a little bit because it's like, you know, crime, crime fiction for young people, you know, and they were sort of seminal yeah. to us. But you also think about, then you think about like, you know, true crime, which is this whole other genre you know, police procedurals, courtroom dramas, you know, yeah. you could all, and you could almost get into like Holocaust literature because, you know, that talk about a crime against humanity. So it, it, it's, it's so broad that, you know, there's no way we could possibly cover it all. Um, so I just wanted to mention that because I, you know, I think this is such a broad category that we should acknowledge that it, this is not, this show isn't really about mysteries. It's not really about detective novels. It's kind of like uh, going through the buffet and a little bit of everything. The other thing I, I just wanted to mention, everybody sort of knows this, but I just think it's interesting to point out um, that three, and there are many more, of course, but three of the greatest writers of modern crime fiction, I would say, all happen to be British women. I think it's more significant that they're women than they're British. But I just thought it was interesting as I was thinking about the category in general. I mean, three of the absolute giants of crime fiction by any measure are Agatha Christie, P.D. James, who I think is still alive or maybe has recently passed away, um, and uh, Dorothy Sayers would be a third. And they all happen to be British women. And I think, I don't, mm. I don't know what to say about that, but I think it's really interesting that, you know, some of literally the absolute all-time greatest writers when it comes to setting up crimes and solving them happen to be women. I just think that's a really mm -hmm. interesting thing. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I happen to be English, which is kind of interesting too, because, you know, I think there is some quality of Englishness that maybe sort of lends itself to this genre. I mean, we talked about it with Derek Raymond too, you know? Yeah. But it's, you know, and, and know. sometimes we feel like we don't get around to women writers as much as we should, but in this category, I mean, <laughs> there, I mentioned the Mount Rushmore before where, where they're def those three are definitely on the Mount Rushmore of, you know, 
crime fiction in a general way. Yeah, I know a lot less about Dorothy Sayers. I, you know, I know she's a giant, but uh, definitely P.D. James and Agatha Christie, you know, and I think I think Dorothy Sayers, too. I just don't know a lot about her stuff. Yeah, I guess she's not quite as well known in the United States, but she wrote a long uh, series of uh, detective novels, essentially featuring a detective named Lord Peter Whimsey. And uh, they, they all have kind of great titles. And I think I've only read one of them, but they're classics. But anyway, those are just a couple of kind of general observations. But why don't you jump into, you know, a couple of the books that you want to highlight? All right. Well, yeah. And there are so many. So like, you know, and, and so for, from this point forward, at least from where I'm sitting, I'm just bringing up some of my favorites, you know, that, that, that really impacted me over the years of reading. And so the first one is a couplet, you know, so what, when I say couplet, I, there's one that I chose to discuss and I'll just do it briefly so we can get more titles in. And then there's another one that's kind of like, for one reason or another is sort of similar, or I would almost say is kind of like the understudy, you know, in a way even though they're not, you know, the same book by any measure. So the first book I really want to bring up, though, John, is called The Name of the Rose. And it's a historical crime novel um, by an Italian writer named Umberto Eco, uh, who I believe is death dead now. But yeah. um, he had a long life and long career. And he wrote, um, I, I, I don't know about a lot of his other titles. There's a few other titles that I've read, but I would say sort of a, increasingly philosophical works um but yeah um works of fiction and I did, he did write nonfiction as well but um and i know his books were very difficult but the book that he was by far the most famous for was this book he wrote called the, the name of the rose which was an historical crime thriller it was actually published i looked this up it was published all the way back in 1980 and it made uh and it was made into a successful film in like the early 80s with sean connery and uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember, but Ron Perlman, the great Ron Perlman was in that movie. You know, that was one of his first roles. <laughs> but anyway, it's kind of a and it was a big sort of Hollywood adaptation, sort of a dark mystery thriller. The movie wasn't as successful. The book is really extraordinary. And I, I haven't read the book recently uh, at all. I read it when I was about 18 or 19. But um, it's definitely one of the. Uh, historical crime classic and it's basically a story uh like a murder mystery it's set in this um monastery with the, in, among these monks in the i think it's the 1200s like the 13th century you know and a series of murders happens in this really old monastery located way high in the italian mountains you know sort of completely isolated from everything and this uh this uh, other brother, this other monk is called in from another country, um, played by Sean Connery in the film, to investigate these murders on the behalf of like, uh, you know, I think like the Inquisition or like the, the, the Catholic Church anyway. Like they send <laughs> in a, a, an investigator to get to the bottom of these crimes and it becomes this and it's a sprawling, very detailed, very rich, very dark um, historical mystery in which kind of bodies continue to drop while this uh, monk is trying to investigate it and gets into all kinds of wild stuff like um, um, the, the way of life of the monks, the, uh, the, 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 um, the way that literature was recopied by the monks and books were preserved, gets into sort of biblical studies um, and some religious studies. It gets into uh, 
like herbology and um, I don't want to get any plot points away, but um, some of the, some of the things that were going on with like plants <laughs> in the, uh, in the, in the monastery. And it's this probing, dark, sprawling, riveting mystery that is like an all world classic for a reason. So that's the name of the Rose, which is a book that, like I said, I read it like 30 years ago and I still would highly recommend it. And a little backup choice for that. Another, if you're into like historical crime thrillers, there's a fascinating book I read only one or two years ago, uh, kind of sort of in a similar vein. It was called an instance of the finger post. I like that title. It was written by a guy named Ian Pears, who's a Scottish writer. And it is also a sprawling historical mystery, but it's set in the 1600s rather than the, the 1200s. And it's set in England, in like medieval England um, or whatever age of England that is. And it's about the murder of an Oxford Don, one of, one of the high up officials in Oxford. Um, but the thing about this book is it's it's equally divided. It's a long book, about six or 700 pages equally divided into four portions and the crime and all the things leading to it and all the aftermath is related from the point of view of four completely different characters. One of them is another Oxford Don. One of them is a doctor. One of them is like the, the, the maid servant, a woman who was accused of the crime and kind of goes down for the having murdered this Oxford Don. And there's another perspective that I wouldn't want to give away from a fourth character. So it's a little bit of a take on that Japanese, famous Japanese story, Rashomon, John, um, mm -hmm. which is another great example of crime literature about a crime being committed and then telling the crime from four different points of view. So the, an instance of the finger post is kind of like that, but it's much more detailed, sprawling, and um, uh, also dark, but kind of riveting. So that's another very good historical crime thriller. So those are my first ones, and I'll pass it back over to you. Those are those are both great recommendations and name of the rose in particular, you know, uh, I read that when I was really young, too. And that would be very high up on my list of novels that I really want to revisit, especially now hearing you describe it again. Yeah, I me mean, too. another. Yeah. Another thing that's distinctive about it is that I, I do remember the structure of the book because it's it has sections. The book is divided into sections that mirror the what's called the divine office which are the different mm -hmm. times day that the monks pray and they have like, um, you know, uh, Vespers is one and Nones is another. And I think Terce is another, you know, it has these different, the monks would wake, you know, pray about seven times a day, every day. Right. Matins. Yeah. Matins like for morning. And, and so in this way, they kind of follow the biblical injunction to, pray without ceasing so that's just part of the rhythm of life at the monastery and i i remember he divides his book into those sections which is just another and it also involves a labyrinth of course because you know <laughs> you know yeah who can forget medieval, the labyrinth yeah if it's a medieval story about monks in libraries there's got to be a labyrinth in there somewhere so <laughs> anyway uh those are really, really great cool. Yeah, really cool book, and and the, the finger post one sounds really interesting too. Maybe a little lesser known. So, again, anybody who's into historical crime, see, there's so many little subgenres, you know, like yeah, yeah. I mean, serial killers themselves, you know, could be a, a whole. I mean, there are oodles of books about serial killers, and you kind of have. 
I have to just get, you kind of can't, if you're of our generation, you can't have this discussion without at least nodding to, um, what, gosh, now I'm blanking. Um, Thomas, uh, the guy who wrote the silence of the lamb, Thomas Harris, Thomas Harris. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The Hannibal Lecter books for anybody who's sort of around our generation are sort of, you know, seminal in this regard. And, um, you know, obviously made a huge impact on the, on the culture. Um, I remember in the you know late eighties, early nineties, when those books were coming out and I think I read a few of them, like just about everybody else, but Silence of the Lambs, I mean, that's a book that really has endured. So that's worth mentioning. I want to, um, I want to highlight to begin. I want to, I'm going to talk at least briefly touch on a whole bunch of nonfiction books, but I want to highlight a couple, you know, undisputed masterpieces of this, you know, broad genre story, which I just have to mention because it's ingenious. You might, you may or may not know where that's going. And the other is a, is, is a nonfiction classic in this, in this regard. So I, you know, one of the most incredible short stories I've ever read is probably one of the foundation stones of this entire genre. And that would be, you know, written by somebody who you read about fairly recently. Story is Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan mm-hmm. Poe. Mm-hmm. You, I'm sure you recall the story, but if there's anybody, I'll just say, if there's anybody who enjoys crime fiction or crime stories in any way, and for some reason has never read Murders in the, in the Rue Morgue, you need to, you know, pause this podcast and go online, look it up. I'm sure it's in the free domain. It's not long. It's just an incredible crime story. And, uh, you know, it's kind of one of these, there's a whole kind of sub sub genre of crime stories where you have essentially a locked room, <coughs> excuse me, that no one seems to be able to get in or out of, but a murder has occurred there. And you have to figure out how could that be? And, well, I'm not going to spoil the way the murder, I'm sure you remember it, you better if you, you're having this discussion, but, you know, I'm not going to spoil, you know, what the solution to this murder is that happens in this completely sealed off room, but it is absolutely ingenious. And I don't, I, I'm not, I don't have data on this, but I'm, I would be shocked if anybody had ever read anything like that before in terms of the what happened, how this person was murdered. Without spoiling it, do you remember what I'm talking about? No. Not, and, and, and I say that with shame because not only have I read the story, but I also read the book about Edgar Allan Poe recently where the guy made the claim that that book is exactly as you said. It, nobody had, when it or that story when it first came out, nobody had read anything like it. And it basically launched the entire detective novel genre. But uh, sadly, I don't remember what the what the solution is okay well then i say to you as my co-host that you know if you i'll keep talking you stop with this recording you go quickly read it <laughs> off google or whatever because it just has even to this day i think it was written i don't know the late 1800s or something it has one of the most jaw-dropping twists in it you will ever read ever 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 period <laughs> so just it I couldn't possibly have this discussion without tipping my hat to that just unbelievable story. Not very long. Go read it, everyone. 
if you haven't. Um, the other classic uh, crime book in this genre, which um, I read somewhere, is the most, I, I don't know if it's the best selling or the most popular, but let's say it's the most read um, book about a true crime in the history of publishing, uh, second most, okay? Um, and that the book I'd like to talk to talk about is the second most, you know, popular or best-selling or most read book about true crime of all time. And that is In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Jude, oh. just to put you on the spot as a little true. Do you have any idea what the first, what number one on that list would be? The most read true crime book of uh, all time. I don't know. Genesis, Cain and Abel. <laughs> I don't know. At, at least in a, this might be only in America, but it's it's a it's a book called Helter Skelter about the Charles Manson uh, murder. I should have known that. I just heard something about that. Gosh darn it! Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. I think many people will know. I think I think it came out in the 1960s. There was an actual murder of a Kansas family in a farmhouse. It was a family of four, I believe. The entire family was murdered. Um by some young criminals who kind of just picked them out at random. It's a home invasion story. Well, long before these were made popular by, you know, sleazy movies and stuff, but uh -huh. they, they, you know, came in, they systematically murdered the father and mother. And I think there was a daughter and a son. And uh, Truman Capote read about this case was, was both horrified and fascinated by it. And he, he went out to Kansas and he interviewed, you know, members of the family and, and people in the town. And he spent an inordinate amount of time, you know, kind of immersing himself in this terrifying case. And he also interviewed the people who were in jail for who are being accused of the crimes. And he was found that, you know, who actually did commit the crimes. And he got really close to one of them. And so this is just an utterly immersive absorbing account of an actual crime and kind of breaking down how it happened, who the people were who perpetrated, perpetrated the crime, you know, what might've been their motivation. He, and he just spent hours and hours and hours interviewing and the book nearly drove him mad. It really, I mean, there's a movie about it. There's a movie version of the book, but there's also a movie called Capote where a lot of it is dedicated to how much he got obsessed with this particular story but the the book itself is is a stone cold classic uh it's really absorbing it's beautifully written but it's also tragic and it's just one of the greatest books written about crime in, in the united states for sure and maybe anywhere so uh that would be another super high recommendation for this list oh, i couldn't agree more i remember i read in cold blood years ago but i remember being absolutely riveted by it and yeah. I don't know what I don't know what it is. It's just it, it's the way it's written and it's just the nature of the crime in the first place. But then how it just sort of systematically follows follows these two guys after how they tried to run from the law and then they're they're getting caught. And just what was driving these dudes? It's an it's just an absolutely stunning book. You know, yeah. anybody interested in true crime should read it. Absolutely. I think like the Manson murders. I think the nature of the crime was just so shocking and, and just shocked the country essentially um, for different reasons, for sure. And they were, they happened in different times, 
and in different places and in different environments. But I, you know, even to this day, you go back and read it now and the description of the crimes and how they happen in this room, you know, little farmhouse in Kansas, it just, it just boggles your mind that something this horrifying would happen to this family out on a farm in the middle of uh, the, the heartland, you know? So something about those circumstances that, that really uh, resonate or I don't know what the word is, but, but it's, it's striking for sure. Yeah, no question. <clears throat> well, the next book I want to recommend is actually a nonfiction book, which is like very unjude of me, John, because um, I, you know, you're usually the nonfiction guy. Although, you know, I love I love nonfiction, but I focus more on fiction. Um, I don't know, my first love, etc. But this book is an exception. So the book I'm going to bring up is going to be have a familiar title to many people because of a famous film that was based upon it. But the book is very different. So the book I want to talk about is called The Gangs of New York. And it was written many, many years ago. I think, I think this book is from the first half of the 20th century, if I'm not mistaken. I want to oh, say wow. the 30s. I want to say the 30s or 40s. I'm not should look that up. Um, it was written by, I'm sorry. I was just, what a great pick. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't oh, remember thanks. that. That up, but wow, that's a that's a great pick. Did you read Gangs of New York, John? No, I didn't. But I but just in terms of being, you know, the setting and the era that it takes place is just fascinating. Well, the thing is that there's a famous movie directed by Martin Scorsese with Daniel Day Lewis and Leo DiCaprio and Cameron Diaz called The Gangs of New York that was based very much on this book, but it's very different. Um, the Gangs of New York, the film is kind of like, a, I would say, call it sort of more of a fiction narrative. There was a script written sort of based on the details from the Gangs of New York, the book, um, but a whole kind of story told a father son kind of thing between <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis and Leo DiCaprio. And it's a good movie. I, I wouldn't call it a, a great movie, but it's a very good movie, especially with its production values and attention to detail, et cetera. But the book, here's what I want to say to our listeners. The book Gangs in New York is very different. It's kind of a, uh, it's a journalistic account, but it's come from another era of journalism. So it's almost like, I don't want to say muckraking because I don't know enough about the history of journalism. But this this is a sort of, uh, I want to say tabloidish, sensational book form, you know, book about the New York City and the crime the crime gangs that dominated New York City way back in the 1840s, 50s, 60s. And what I want to say about the gangs in New York is that the book is just batshit. Pardon my French. It's about how batshit the crime scene was in New York. Now, you get a sense of that from the movie, you know, um, because the movie takes care to mention the titles of different gangs of criminals and, you know, whether they're Irish or Jewish or... <coughs> excuse me or um black or you know different ethnicities and stuff but the book is way more detailed and infinitely crazier than the the movie because the movie is sort of tied up in a narrative the book is just reportage about how nuts each gang was in relation to the other and every gang that's mentioned in the book is crazier than the one before it and the, the, the sheer insanity, raw violence, uh, winner takes all, um, 
criminal, um, you know, darkness and bleakness of the, the city of New York, at least in this five points area of, uh, you know, Manhattan is just madness. And, you know, you, you, you're reading it and it's basically just kind of goes through all these different accounts of, of hundreds of gangs and what they were famous for and brief histories of what they did and how they rose and how they fall, you know, how they fell. And it just keeps going and going. And it's written in kind of a sensational manner and it is just nuts. And it's, uh, you know, super violent and just crazy. So like, I, I really recommend this book. Uh, I thought it was just a, a fascinating and it's kind of thrilling to read about. I was, you know, basically every page of this book, I was thanking, you know, my lucky stars that I wasn't born in the 1840s in New York City because I wouldn't have survived for like three days based on how <laughs> these books sound. Um, it's madness. But if you're interested in just, you know, crazy history and the underbelly of things, you, can, you, you can't do much better than the gangs in New York. Herbert Asbury made a career out of this. I, I think he wrote about gangs in many cities. I know that once the gangs in New York became sort of popular again, there were a number of his books published and they all seem to be similar in nature. Um, but uh, wow, it is just a crazy book. So that's what I would say about gangs in New York. If you like the movie, but are interested in the, just the, the seeminess of it, you know, you're not going to find more in one book setting than in the gangs in New York. I promise. Man, <laughs> that's one. That's one I need to catch up with someday for sure. Um, and it, it's cool how it it sounds indeed like it's very, very different from the movie, which is sort of, you know, saddled by a half-baked romance and, you know, like you, certain arcs that you kind of like the father and son stuff. But uh, the book sounds very different. That's a, that sounds really cool. Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is the movie has the tropes and the book is just straight up reportage, like I said. So take that for what you will. Yeah, the book is just the gangs and the crime, <laughs> and that's it. Are you are you gonna make it there? Yeah, I'm just have a scratchy throat, but we can uh, we can push through it. Sorry for the distractions. Well, um, I guess it can't. It's got starting to become where episode of the Book Exchange podcast without somebody bringing up at least one book from the New York Review of Books Press. Um, oh yeah, you know, why not? You know, let's uh, let's, uh, let's we should sign a re contract with them and like get a, you know, get a cut or something. I don't know. Yeah, we really should. But um, you and I talked the book I'm going to mention now a little bit off camera. What I didn't tell you is that I actually dipped into this book and read parts of it in order to prepare for this discussion. And this is a thick volume that they put out, and it's called Classic Crimes. Oh and man. Yeah, it's written by a guy named William Ruff, Scottish. He has, um, I was reading in the introduction, he um, comes, he's from Scotland, the Edinburgh area, and he uh, has a legal background. So he, you know, is a trained lawyer. And he was just fascinated with the legal system in Scotland and England. And he particularly got fascinated with, you know, um, sensational trials and he ended up attending whether he's a part of it or not he would he attended a great many of the of the most famous criminal trials of the day and he took copious notes and documented them 
And that became this kind of compendium that's called Classic Crimes. He published, this is actually, this is a thick book. This is, oh gosh, about almost 600 pages. And it, and it covers about 12 very, very well-known crimes of their time. So this is, these are basically in the um, 18th and 19th century. Um, and he, you know, attended a lot of these criminal trials himself. But this book that New York Review of Books Press put out is, is, is just kind of a, of a summary of a much larger work in, in which he, you know, just, just with incredible detail documented, you know, case after case of there were murder cases and other criminal cases. Um, but I decided, you know, and the thing about this book, it, it, you know, it's touted as, you know, it says on the back of the book, there's a quote from the New York Times, the cornerstone of any library of crime talking about classic crimes. Um, hmm. But in the introduction, it says, essentially, you know, every element that you've ever seen it out of Sherlock Holmes, you know, Conan Doyle, out of Agatha Christie, out of uh, Chesterton, out of all these, you know, classic uh, mystery stories can be found in these accounts of actual true life crimes. So this is a, this is a, this is a book that, you know, describes in great detail um, just famous crimes of the day and kind of what happened, what the circumstances were, who the people were involved. And then he particularly, Ruffett was particularly interested in the courtroom drama. You know, what happened in court, how the, how the, how the team of lawyers tries to defend the person who's being accused of the crime and what the case is of the prosecution. And he goes into great detail. And so I read three of these accounts and they're all kind of set, you know, in the in the Edinburgh area. So a couple of them are in England, but most of them are in Scotland. And there are all kinds of different sort of colorful crimes. Most of them involve murder. Um, but what really makes this book, and I wanted to say to you, what, what th this book, the way this book is written is so, his prose style is so vivid and so detailed, but but just really fun. You know, he, he just goes into great, you can tell a ton of research went into the, you know, description of each crime, but he really kind of immerses you in the drama of, you know, the courtroom and, and, and the intricacies of the one case being built against the people who are accused and the other to defend them. And he has kind of a very colorful, almost Dickensian, you know, sort of like writing style that's not too far over the top, but just adds a layer of kind of verbal dexterity to these accounts that is really a lot of fun. So I, I read three of the 12 and I, I knew nothing about the cases at all, but I was engrossed in all. And so if that's indicative of the way this book is, you know, I can see why it, it has its reputation as being, you know, kind of like a foundational book for this genre because it's uh you know these accounts were just incredibly detailed very rich very colorful and his prose just kind of pushed it over the top for me i think i think you in particular would really enjoy this book so it's called classic crimes from by william ruffhead from the new york review of press and new york review of books press and i i really uh enjoyed what i read of it well, that's a great one. I have a copy of that. Uh, yeah, I'm sort of really sort of eyeing it all the time, like looking forward to digging into it. It sounds like, you know, sort of maybe in the same avenue as the gangs in New York in a way, like with the the, the, the sort of uh, 
entertaining style of writing about, you know, older crimes that are just nuts, you know? Yeah, it's it's like you say, it's like reportage, like, um, you know, Ashbury did for the for the gangs in New York. But you, if you would describe that as kind of tabloidy, this is like, it's like the crimes may be tabloidy, but the way they're described, his pro style is more like, you know, like I said, like Dickens, or uh, it's very colorful, lots of like, you know, really, you know, lesser used words. And it's, it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, yeah, going kind of veering all over the road here as we tend to do, um, which is, you know, part of the part of the fun of it. So I've got two couplets left. And I think I, I'd want to try to hit all four books, but I'll just I'll, I'll just try to do it briskly. Um, and then I don't know how many you have left. Um, so the next books I want to mention. So I, I, I put a couplet together with two books by women. Actually, the first one that I wanted to bring up is, is actually by P.D. James, John, one of the giants that you brought up from um, English crime writing. And I oh. haven't read a lot of her books. I've read only just uh, maybe one or two of her books. But I wanted to mention her because of her status as a, you know, a, sort of a globally revered mystery writer. I think she is still alive, but she's like definitely in her 90s for sure. I don't know if she's still putting out um, books or not. Um, but the book, the, the most memorable book I read about her came out in the mid 2000s called The Lighthouse. Um, and it was, you know, her books are very classic genre books. There's like she has one particular sleuth. And in, in her case, it's an investigator for the British police by the name of Adam Dalgleish. John, you'll be familiar with that character. And yeah. he's uh, a very fascinating character that she's been developing over many, many novels um, he's noted, of course, for his expertise in getting to the bottom of uh, murder and solving crimes. But he's also on the side uh, a sort of amateur poet. And so a lot of the character has um, uses on things from the perspective of a sort of a poetic nature, which is a really interesting aspect of his character, especially considering what he does for a job. And then he has this kind of sort of long standing on again, off again, romantic relationship with a, a woman of his same year. So somebody, you know, when you, at least where I encountered Adam Dalgleish, he was kind of a sort of towards the end of his career and the woman was kind of a mature woman. And they kind of, you know, have this sort of rich relationship that's never quite sure of where it is. <laughs> and those three elements are uh, mainstays in many of P.D. James novels, not all of them. And like I said, I haven't read a ton of her novels, but what's so, and so this was a, a, a story that was based around this very old lighthouse on the, on the uh, Western British coast. Uh, I believe it's the area called Cumbria down sort of on the way to Cornwall in Britain. And there's uh, one individual who's murdered uh, and found hanging off the top of this lighthouse. And Adam Dalgleish is called out to investigate. And during the course of his investigation over a, uh, Maybe not a really long book, but a very dense book, maybe somewhere between three or 400 pages. Um, there's a, a second murder occurs. And so he has to sort of get to the bottom of both of them. And that that's all you kind of need as far as the plot goes. What's so interesting about P.D. James, at least in the books I've read, is how uh, what an, she's a little bit like a sort of a female Jean Le Carre in a way, because she's a very elegant pro stylist. <laughs> And sort of representative of of an older way of writing books with a especially British 
crime books with a, a flair for language and, and a, a great deal of elegance, wit, intelligence, and um, uh, flair, you know, like and maturity. Um, and and P.D. James, very famously, is also somebody who carries herself in a similar similar manner in interviews. It's a very refined, intelligent, and highly respected English woman. And her books are written with great um, care and intelligence and wit. And they're but they're very dense. They have they're very very detailed, and they really unpack at a great detail of these crimes that occur and what happens in them. And to me, it was just kind of fascinating to read one of her books. And to experience, you know, I keep wanting to say the elegance, but just kind of the the, the beauty and elegance of her writing style and how um, committed to the crime genre she comes across as being. And so, um, and then the other book I wanted to bring up by a woman is very different, but I, I it just sort of stands out in my mind from a couple of years ago when I read it. Not as well known at all. This is by an American writer by way of a couple different nations. The book is called Eileen. And it's written by uh, sort of a up and coming, very uh, much honored American writer named Otessa Moshfeg, M-O-S-H-F-E-G-H. And she is uh, from New England, but she's descended from an Iranian Jewish father. So a Jew from Iran and a Croatian mother. And she's the author of a couple uh, a couple novels and and and. Uh, a book that I really have been interested in to read by her, but have never read. It's a short story collection that really made a big bang a few years back called Homesick for Another World. John, that book, have you ever heard of that book, Homesick for Another World, a collection of stories? Yes, yes I have. Okay, that book was on like the top of my exchange list for you for a couple seasons going. And I never, I've never read it and I never, you know, quite pulled the trigger on it but I had seen some really amazing reviews of it. But the book I wanted that I did find and read was called Eileen. And uh, I won't cover the length, but it was just, it was a really interesting crime novel. It was about, it was set in the 1960s in New England. And it was about a sort of a mysterious kind of mousy single woman who had a job as a secretary at like a institution for troubled boys. And what happens is, and, and it's a slim novel and it's a very dark and mysterious novel. It's borderline kind of horror. And, and it's because of the way that this character is built up by Moshfeg. She's kind of a mysterious, I say kind of mousy um, woman. And you find out as the book unfolds over a, a small space that she's alone in a house with her father, who's a raging alcoholic. So she's kind of tending to him for as long as he hangs on. And that's what she does when she's not working in this mental institution. And uh, what happens is a, a, a young doctor, another woman, is assigned to the mental institution. And she comes in and she strikes up a friendship with this woman, Eileen. But Eileen feels very increasingly threatened by her and um, territorial. And she ends up basically, I don't want to give away too much, but Eileen ends up basically kidnapping this young woman and trapping her in the basement of her house and keeping her there. And I wouldn't want to go any further than that uh, to tell you how this whole story gets resolved, but it doesn't go, doesn't go to a good place. And just the nature of that dark story that it was set in the sixties in new England and that the, the mystery of this character was really memorable 
to me. So I did want to bring that book up as a sort of a contemporary crime example. So back to you. Wow. <laughs> that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Uh, we got, I have, I have a ton that I haven't covered. Like we're obviously not going to get to it. And I want to leave a little bit of room for the, you know, end stuff at the end of the episode here. Um, so I'm trying to kind of figure out how to at least mention some of these, you know, that I have written down. Um, well, I think I would say to you, just to make an offer, I'll be, uh, th there was another couple that I wanted to cover. I'll be glad to drop it. You know, if you want to go at a little bit more length, that'd be fine. Well, I'll, I'll do my best because I want to leave a little room at the end, as I said. But, you know, I think talking about the genre, we have to at least touch on. I mean, there's so many ways to approach this category of books. And I was thinking in all these different categories, whether they be sort of more pulpy fiction or classic mysteries or true crime novels. But then, you know, there's a whole other sort of subcategory, at least in my mind, and that would be you know, books, classic books that are based on, you know, well-known, you know, American history, whether it be historical crimes or, um, or what. So, you know, I, in that category, I have to, I just want to mention a few, you know, there are some absolutely, and most of these I have not read, but if you have any interest at all in, in kind of um, some of the most, sensational and well-known kind of American historical crimes, you know, you have to at least mention the book, All the President's Men by Woodward and Bernstein, you know, mm. which is sort of the definitive book about investigating um, Watergate. You know, I think they're, they're the two journalists who supposedly broke the whole Watergate story. I think it was a Washington Post or um, it might be the New York Times. I'm not sure. But you know, post, these are, post. yeah. So there, there are a number of books that kind of take on you know very you know well-known American crimes, and, and you know, so the, all the presidents' men by Woodward and Bernstein. I mean, there are many books that look at the Kennedy assassination, but a, a couple I thought I would mention. One is I think fiction. The nonfiction is called. I remember you and I talking about this years ago. There's a huge book called Case Closed by Cheryl mm -hmm. is the name of the author. And he basically wrote the account of the entire um, Kennedy assassination. And he, you know, he called the case closed because he, he supposedly, he, you know, he was able to say definitively that, that you know, Oswald acted alone. Uh, but that's another, that's a sort of a well-known account of, or exhaustive historical look at the Kennedy assassination. But then you have Norman Mailer wrote this huge book called Oswald's Tale, right? Which was about Lee Harvey Oswald and kind right. of like his fictionalized account of his life. And that, you know, perhaps provides a, a whole other look at the Kennedy assassination. I didn't read that one. I know you've read some Mailer. I don't I don't think you read that one, have you? No, I've never read that. Yeah, I mean it's like this huge, it could have been in our, you know, go big or go home like most of Mailer's books, because it's this huge doorstop of a book. But that's another one, you know, that I thought of. And then more recently, and this is a book that I did read and would recommend. And this is kind of, this is where, you know, is this really crime, a, a criminal book? In some ways it is. It's a book called The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11. And mm. it's more of kind of a historical look at, at the conditions <laughs> that created Al-Qaeda and what led up to, you know, the 9-11 attacks. Um, 
but it's a really, and that's by Lawrence Wright. It's really kind of a look at more of, you know, how Al Qaeda came to be and how they sort of emerged and became this global threat and how that led to 9-11. And there's a particularly interesting part of the book where I can't remember the agent's name, but there's an FBI agent who basically predicted what was going to happen on 9-11 accurately. And, um, but couldn't get enough people to kind of buy into his vision. Um, so that was a really interesting part of the book. Um, well, and, and, and but I got to interrupt you because then the most fascinating thing about that, not only did he predict it, but he ended up getting ramrodded out of the FBI because he couldn't get enough people on board, took a job in the World Trade Center and ended up dying in the attack. Oh, yeah. Gosh, I can't believe I forgot that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just astonishing. Yeah, the that guy's story alone, you're right, is just absolutely it's worth the price of admission to read The Looming Tower. I mean, obviously not a happy tale, but a really exhaustively researched look at Al-Qaeda and what led to 9-11. Um, and, you know, another category in my mind of kind of more recent sort of, I don't know if I'd call them, well, in one case, I, I'm not even sure I could lump these together, but there are some there are a few books I've read recently that were looks at, um, you know, kind of different, you know, either dark chapters in American history or it may have been a longer time ago. It may have been pretty recently. There's a book that was mentioned on this podcast before. I won't really go into it, but it's called Killers of the Flower Moon by David Grant, and it describes the killing of a number of Native Americans in Oklahoma. That's you mentioned Scorsese. It's supposedly it's his next movie um, that he's been working on for a long time. But it's a really harrowing tale, a real life tale of how uh, a number, you know, basically uh, killings that happened to members of a Native American tribe because of their ownership of land on which sat upon oil. And there is a whole just an incredibly dark uh, series of killings that happen, you know, and it involves big business and corrupt, you know, police officers. And it's really just an incredible tale. Um, there's another book that uh, I can't remember if you gave it to me or you just recommended it to me, but it's a it's a book called Dreamland. And. and the true story of America's opioid epi epidemic by a guy named San Quinones. And it talks, it, it's kind of like this really kind of riveting account of how uh, basically how the opioid epidemic has grown in this country. And um, it's crime. It, it's not crime like serial killer type crime, but it's crime in the ways that, you know, big pharma companies have embedded and in some ways are responsible for causing this kind of mass scale, you know, epidemic of, of opioid addiction and how some very shady characters took advantage of the situation and opened up these sort of pseudo pharmacies in, in uh, areas of the country where, that were economically depressed and just basically dispensed, you know, opioids and got entire states you know, basically addicted to like the state of West Virginia, you know, and I don't say that flippantly, but I, you know, the opio opioid addiction at one point, you know, was just ravaging that entire state. It's a really tragic story. Um, 
that's another one that was really made a mark upon me. There's one more nonfiction book I wanted to bring up and then I'll see if you have anything else that you want to add. But um, it, it's a, it's a book that was basically the basis for the whole series, the wire, that famous series on HBO. I haven't read this book actually, but it's on my shelf and I think it's on your shelf too. Yeah. And that's called homicide a year on the killing streets by David Simon. who was the creator of the show, the wire, but he worked in Baltimore I think our son for years reporting on <laughs> drug related crimes and he, you know, he chronicled the whole year. And, um, you know, I think that's sort of like the ur text for the show, the wire. And um, I haven't read it, but I'm sure that's a riveting book. So that's another one that, you know, I thought anybody who has seen the show or might be interested in, you know, a real life look at, you know, crime and you know drug violence on american streets that's probably the one to go to yeah so that that's a smattering of books i mean we're we're running out of time a little bit but i just wanted to mention some of those nonfiction titles yeah no i'm glad you brought those up those are all really good uh examples <clears throat> of nonfiction crime books and of course homicide the book by damon simon famously you know led first to a series called Homicide, Life on That's the Streets. Right. It's like kind of a cult cop series that didn't quite get off the ground, and then they repurposed it again into The Wire, which, you know, sort of took off and changed the landscape of serial TV, you know? Um, yeah, and in between those two was a kind of a four-part miniseries on HBO called The Corner. Yeah, Um that was related to that whole, you know, kind of pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So uh, to round up my, I just want to quickly mention two other fiction titles because they're just some of my favorites. One of my favorite crime novels of all of my reading life is, um, is a book <laughs> that really stands out to me because of the, ingenious way and the extremely clever way and audacious way it combines the the tropes i guess or the hallmarks of a crime novel with kind of spe what they call speculative fiction you know which is sort of somewhere between sci-fi and dystopian whatever one of the most riveting crime novels i ever read it's called the city in the city and it was written by somebody who kind of specializes in speculative fiction another british author by the name of china mieville um, who I think is just a fascinating writer. And most, he just writes sort of weird fiction, basically. But he decided to vote to devote to, to make one of his weird novels into kind of a crime novel. And he called The City in the City. And it it's like a about a cop, like a sort of grizzled cop investigating a murder, like so many other crime novels. But the thing about this book is it's set in a fictional country where there are two cities that are built right next to each other that are completely different in nature. One of them has kind of a more British sounding name. I can't remember what it is, but the other, the name of the city right next to it, built literally right next to it, has kind of like an Arabic sounding name. It's like a hyphenated old something. Completely different city and culture. And um, there's like cops that preside in both of these two cities. But in between the two cities is like a sort of Gaza Strip-like area of land that's called the Breach. And the breach is kind of a almost like a free fire zone between these two cities. You know, 
if you're in one city, the rules are one way. If you're in another city, the rules are completely different another way. But if you're in the breach, there are no rules, you know, and it's like this black zone in between these two cities. And of course, the murder that he's investigating is dead in the middle of the breach. And so the breach has no like, you know, the cops in the one city and the cops in the other city. Nobody really has dominion over what happens in the breach. It's a friggin free for all, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so so this grizzled cop gets assigned to a murder that happens in the breach and he goes into the breach, which is putting your life in your hands right there and just all hell breaks loose. <laughs> and it's like and I found that that conceit for a crime novel to be just utterly fascinating. And I just couldn't put this book down. You know, it was like really just nuts. <laughs> so just in terms of like an audacious idea for a crime novel, that's definitely worth mentioning. The City in the City by China Beaville. And then the last one I want to mention is for your more ambitious readers that may still be hanging on. Um, uh, but I have to mention it, a crime novel, I guess. You know, this is the one that I said, I'm not even sure if it really counts as a novel. So there's a, a writer uh, from Chile who is more, much more famous after his death than he ever was while living. And his name was Roberto Bolaño. And he um, became famous. He died at a young age of cancer. And he had all these books that were written that were not published and became famous for right after his death or right before he died, a kind of intellectual literary thriller called the savage detectives was published and it took off in the United States and all over the world shortly thereafter, or either right before, or right after that book came out, which I haven't read, he died. And then his very last novel that he ever wrote was published after that. And it's an absolutely gigantic novel called 2666. Um, and it's in the, in the original Spanish, it was like 1100 pages in the U S edition. It's like 900 pages. I couldn't even begin to describe this book. And I frankly don't know anybody who would dare take it on other than me and you, but it, but if you <laughs> do read it, it's impossible to forget. It's about, so Bolaño was from Chile, but he decided to focus on this area of Mexico called Juarez, which was like a crime ridden, um, a cartel, you know, enslaved part of Mexico, where at a certain point in the towards the end of the 20th century, there was an epidemic of murders of young women and young women by the hundreds started just like disappearing in Juarez, Mexico. And this book side sort of has that area and that phenomenon as its centerpiece. But it's this weird uh it was published in the U.S. in like five different parts. You can even get it in five small volumes. Um, it's a weird story of these characters sort of circling around this part of the world from all other different parts of the world. One of them is like a professor in like Europe. And the other one is like a cop in like Mexico. And the other somebody's from the United States. And it tells these all these backstories of these characters and somehow interweaves them into um, this whole area of Juarez and these, this epidemic of the missing women. But the set, and so that's kind of weird. It's this epic novel with all these different people that goes, there's one whole section about World War II. It's just going, it kind of goes all over the place. But the, the centerpiece of 2666 is this huge section in the middle of the book, which is not even like fiction. It's, it's literally kind of like a catalog, like a police file that describes uh, the murders of these missing women 
like when they were found and what their state is, their clothes, you know, who was who witnessed them. It's kind of like these forensic files of these missing women. And it goes on for like 300 pages. And it's just woman after nameless woman after nameless woman after nameless woman after nameless woman. And it's not written in like any particular style. It's kind of just a file, you know, like an investigation file. But there's this effect it has. And I remember reading it and being like, you know, I was like a third of the way through just that section of the book. And I was like, what, what am I doing here? But like, you know, it, as you keep pressing through it, you begin to get this strange sense of the immense gravity and horror of this crime epidemic in Mexico and all these faceless women that were just lost to eternity. And, you know, and it begins to just kind of accumulate and weigh on you. So I know I talked about it a lot, but it's one of the nuttiest books that I've ever read uh, that you could say is a crime novel, but it's, it's so much more than that. It's just impossible to forget, but it's only for the brave. So that's 2666. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like an ambitious book for sure, but a uh, fascinating one. Absolutely. Yeah, and, they, um, and, they, and they, the, the title, 2666, they don't even know why it was called that because Bolaño died. People could only speculate, and there's these nuts theories. He never explains it in the book. The number's never mentioned in the book, and the theories range far and wide. One of them is that when God created the world, uh, historically in like the Bible or in biblical literature, it was exactly 2,666 years later that he led the, the, that Moses led the, the Jews out of, out of Egypt, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and then there's a bunch of other theories as to what 266 means. And it's never explained by anybody. So <laughs> go figure. Yeah. Go. Uh, so if any of our listeners figure that one out, they could. Yeah. Call take back that in. with you. Let everybody know. Well, I think we got to cut it off. We're, we're running rather long here. So um, I, I think we should take a break and then, you know, kind of come back and finish up the episode. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think it was worth it. You know, uh, it's been a while since we did a, a longer episode. But, yeah, let's break it here and come back and we'll talk about what we're reading next quickly and tease episode 40. All right. Okay, to wrap it up, John, what's up next for your reading? Well, I'll say it real quickly. I haven't started it at all yet, but this is a book. Um, we talk about the the book exchange that gave this podcast its title. This is a book that you gave me. I think it was last year. Um, and I decided, you know, we happen to be a few days from All Hallows Eve or Halloween. So it seemed like a good time to crack into this. It's a book called, this is a pretty ingenious pick that you gave me called, it's, there's a press, a kind of a newly founded press called Valancourt Books. And they exist to kind of, this is great. They exist to essentially be the NYRB press of horror literature. 
to, to just kind of find lesser known horror writers and kind of bring them to the, you know, a wider audience. And so in order to sort of kick off their press, they put together an anthology of world horror stories. So there's horror stories from different parts of the world that are typically not translated into English at all. So that's a number, it's a whole compilation of stories from different countries all over the globe. And uh, a lot of fun. So I'm going to read that after finishing up Isaac Asimov's final. And uh, I'll let you know how it goes since you're the one who picked it for, for me. So uh, thank you for that. Should be great. Man, I forgot all about that. And now I'm jealous. I I'm going to show up at your house tomorrow and take that thing back. You know, horror Man. stories from around the world. I mean, come on. That's got to be nuts. Yeah, I mean, some of the countries represented, I mean, there's each chapter is a story from someone from a a country that isn't typically translated. You got Romania, you got Sweden, Peru, Norway, Spain, Italy, South Africa, Denmark, Catalonia, Martinique, Ecuador, Senegal. I mean, it should be should be pretty wild. All right, I'm not going anywhere near horror from Africa or from like Russia. You know, forget it. <laughs> Well, right. that's, that's going to be great. I can't wait to hear about that. And for me, uh, I'm reading a crime novel next, amazingly, um, from one of my all-time favorite writers that I return to on a regular basis, Mr. Stephen King, Uncle Stevie. Um, I like to read his books, you know, uh, a few of them a year. And uh, I'm actually reading his, his newest, newest, newest book. It's called Billy Summers. And it's about, it's a crime. All I know is that it's about, I mean, how, how, uh, <laughs> only Stephen King can get away with this. How cliche is this? It's about the, it's about a, an aging hitman who uh, decides that, you know, he, you know, he, he does admittedly kill people for a living, but he only does it if they're really, really bad people. And he has the assurance that they're really bad people. And um, he decides and he gets assigned, you know, he wants to hang it up, but he gets assigned to do one last hit. And, <laughs> <laughs> I can't. <laughs> That's literally the plot. I mean, like, you know, only Stephen King can get away with this, but somehow he's concocted a 500 page novel out of it called Billy Summers. I deliberately have stayed away from the reviews. I do think, you know, uh, so we can save Stephen King discussion for another day. I think he's sort of weakening in his later years. <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm going to think of this book, but I, I, I sort of thought maybe I'll review it for the magazine I write for. So, uh, Anyway, Billy Summers is up next. I, I love Stephen King, so I'm looking forward to reading that. And uh, so that'll do it on what we're reading. And uh, it sort of necessarily, folks, as we wrap up this episode, I'm going to throw it back to my brother to give us an idea of what's going to be happening in episode 40. Can't do it myself. Go ahead, John. No, you can't. But uh, episode 40 is going to be a lot of fun. And it's a uh... Well, it's one of our special episodes, and we're going to turn the uh, turn the microscopic lens inward a little bit. So it's just so ha as as people who listen to this podcast know, uh, my co-host Jude Joseph Lovell here is a writer himself, uh, and he's releasing a brand new book, which is, um, gosh, it's it's something. It, the book is it, it's a brand new uh, novel, uh, kind of a novella almost. Um, and the title is Time O'Clock, Time O'Clock. And he's writing it, I hope I can say this, he's writing it under a pseudonym, 
uh, and the, that name is Foster Mullins. And right. this this book is being released on, I believe it's November 6th. So, and that will be right around the time that we record our next episode. So what we're going to, what we decide to do in order to celebrate the release of this new book from Jude, um, which is a really, I've read an advanced copy. It's a, it's kind of a mind bending mystery, I guess, that plays around with identity, plays around with some, um, actually some tropes of the, you know, um, detective slash noir kind of genre. And it also, you know, plays around with re reality itself a little bit in amusing ways. It's kind of a mystery slash thrillers slash existential puzzle. It's a short book. It's really fun. And I, I thought we would take the occasion for our next podcast to, um, going to interview Jude and we're going to uh, we're going to talk about the new book we're going to talk about kind of some of the influences behind it what went into writing it and I think it should be a fun and interesting discussion not only about Jude's new book which I hope I encourage people to look for on Amazon again it's called Time O'Clock and it's listed the, the listed author is Foster Mom, and there's a reason for that which we'll get into um but this is a short, really fun read. But I think, I, I think you know, the discussion about it and kind of digging into how it came to be will um, take us down a number of different roads that should be a lot of fun. I mean, the book reads, you know, somewhat between like a, to me, it felt a little bit like a combination of like a, uh, you know, a noir kind of thriller, you know, put in a blender with like a David Lynch movie. <laughs> You know, if that makes any sense to any of our fun. And I think we're going to take some time on the podcast to really sort of celebrate this release and, you know, dig into, you know, kind of Jude's always talking on this show about how the sausage gets made. Well, we're going to talk to him, how he makes the sausage. So that should be a lot of fun. And so that's going to be our episode 40. Really looking forward to that one. And uh, I'm sure you are too, Jude. Well, thank you, John. Thanks a lot uh, just for allowing us to indulge in this kind of an episode. But yeah, I hope I can answer how I make the sausage because I don't really know. <laughs> and this, uh, it, and it's probably most evident in this book, but um, I'm very proud of the book. I think it's a fun book and it's going to be fun to talk to you about it. I appreciate that you've read it already. I can sort of force it on you, but I appreciate that you have. And uh, and I also appreciate that, that description of a, uh, a noirish thriller uh, and a David Lynch movie. I've, you know, I've got the utmost respect for David Lynch. I wouldn't put it on his level, but yeah, it's kind of a reality. I like to say the, the phrase I invented for it was reality slurring. You're kind of talking about reality and you don't know what happened to your words. <laughs> if that's yeah. uh, if that's the kind of book that lights you up, this book might be for you. And if it's not, it only lasts 170 pages. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope people will tune in for that. And again, I, I, I mean, it, it's a good way to promote the book. And I think the book deserves readership. So I hope people, you know, might take a look at it and be interested enough to check it out, maybe purchase it from Amazon. But more than that, I really think this discussion is going to go in a lot of fun directions in terms of influences and maybe even films and noir and all that and mysteries and all that kind of fun stuff. So I hope I hope people will tune in. And I think that's going to do it, right, for this episode. 
Right. Well, you can't get much better reader than John. You know, he's kind of the best kind of kind of reader. So I'm sure he's going to fire some interesting questions at me. But you're right. That draws the crime of this episode to a close. <laughs> and uh, I hope you enjoyed you all enjoyed listening to some of our favorite crime books. And thank you for hanging in this long. And everybody have a good week until we catch you on the next episode. Right on. I echo that, and uh, we appreciate each and every listener. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye.